0: Today we're going to be talking about John chapter 18, title of today's message is The Betrayal. Anybody here happen to remember from your history what may have happened on May 15th of the year 44 BC? Anybody alive during that time? Just checking, I was going to put a joke in there but I decided not to. It's a little hint. May 15th is the Ides of March. Does that ring a bell? No, nobody, know, nobody remembers their history? Well, there you go. Yep, that's when Julius Caesar was assassinated. Many of us had to read a dramatic portrayal of that in high school and read the play by William Shakespeare. A little background into why Caesar was assassinated and why it matters for us this morning. Rome had a very similar government to the one that we enjoy here in America, and then that they were a republic during that time. Republic is a form of government in which elected officials make the laws, and they govern by the will of the electorate. At the time of the Caesar's assassination, Rome was still pretty much a functional republic with the emperor who was elected by the Senate. Now Julius Caesar was a famous general in the Roman Empire who eventually rose to become emperor. Because of was incredible popularity with the people, the citizens of Rome, about a year and a half, two years before they elected him um, emperor, they elected him emperor for life. And that really worried some people in the Roman Senate that he was going to try to become a dictator and just completely dissolve the Senate and that he was going to be the ultimate power. These senators grew more and more and more concerned about this and got paranoid to the point of several of them deciding to um, form a conspiracy to assassinate him on the 15th of May. And a few of the conspirators were actually very close friends with Caesar, and one of them was named Brutus. It's said that during the assassination attempt, Caesar was actually unarmed and alone during that time. And he was actually holding his own against several men armed with daggers. You've got to remember, he's a general. He's, he's risen up through the, the Roman legion. So he knows how to fight. He knows how to defend himself. And he's fighting against all these men with daggers trying to stab him. But then he, he finally saw the face of one of the men, and it was his, one of his best friends, Brutus. And when he saw that one of his best friends wanted to kill him, It is said that Caesar just backed up, drew his cloak over his face, and he uttered the famous words, et tu Brute, which is Latin. That means, and even you, Brutus? The fight left Caesar at that moment, and he was stabbed 23 times before he finally died. Has anyone here ever been betrayed by someone? Someone you thought that might be a close friend that turned their back on you or you learned that they are the source of the gossip and source of the trouble that's in your life during that time. There's just something about a betrayal that can really knock us flat on our backs, isn't it? The reason is in order to betray someone, you've had to first gain their trust or given their, your trust to them. Trust and love, they go hand in hand. So it'll be very diff- it's a very difficult and a very emotional, trying event with that, when that love and that trust is broken. Jesus knows exactly how you feel when you go through those times. John chapter 18 describes the betrayal of Jesus. And when we th- think about everything that went into his betrayal, we automatically think it starts and ends with Judas. But as I was studying and preparing to bring this teaching this morning, I realized that Judas was not the only betrayer of Jesus in John chapter 18. There are actually four different betrayals of Jesus in this chapter that I want to look at this morning. And these four examples are still relevant to us today because they are still the way that people betray Jesus, his mission, and his kingdom in this world that we live in right now. Before we get into this and break this down, let's ask God to bless our time together. Father God, I ask, Lord, that you just take your word, the precious gospel of John, and you make it relevant and real to us this morning. I ask, Father, you take these four examples and use it to judge the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts, our actions, and the way that we interact not only with each other, but with the world at large. Father God, it's my desire this morning that you use this time to make us more like you. Father, I ask this in your name. Amen. In John 18, there's four ways or four reasons that people still betray Jesus' mission in his kingdom today. And the first reason uh, that people betray Jesus, we see in, in the disciple Peter. And that is from unmet expectations. In the original outline of this message, I actually had put cowardly in the unmet expectations. Like I said, they do it because of cowardness, because of Peter's um, actions during the events immediately leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. But as I thought about it a little bit and I meditated on it, I realized that that's a little harsh and a little too simplistic of a way to describe Simon Peter's actions during those those few hours it's really easy to pick on Peter for his actions but i don't think he was a coward at all if you think about it he stood alone between jesus and an entire temple guard with a few roman centurions standing there armed only with a sword he had no armor He had no backup. It wasn't like all the other disciples were doing anything. And he really didn't have any training on how to use that sword. You see that in the fact that he was only able to take a guy's ear off when he should have been able to at least kill a couple people with a single swing of a sword. All he was able to do is chop an ear off of somebody. That's not the actions of a coward. So if it wasn't cowardness that led Peter to to deny Jesus, what was the motivation? Well, I would submit to you this morning... It was an unmet expectation that Peter had about Jesus. It's been said over and over again during the Gospel of John series that we've been in this year that the disciples had this Old Testament way of looking at the Messiah and they placed that upon Jesus. And because of that, Peter believes that right now he is in the ground floor of the future kingdom. He believes he's right next to the guy who's going to be king. Peter thinks that he's going to be Jesus' viceroy or his vice president of this future kingdom, that he will be doing the ruling and Jesus will be kind of enjoying himself, but he'll be doing the day-to-day type of things. So as Peter watches Jesus be arrested, then beaten, then scourged, then mocked, then tried, and then falsely convicted by the religious leaders, and then he's beaten again, he's watching his entire world crumble. He is watching everything he has put faith in in the last three years totally be washed away. He has lost everything at this point. He's given up everything for this guy. Let me illustrate a little bit where Peter is this morning. All of us in the last few weeks, have you watched the stories coming out of California about the people who lost everything in those wildfires? People lost their homes, their possessions, sometimes even loved ones and pets. In this fire. And you see the look in their eyes as the TV reporters are interviewing them. That, that ghostly lost look that they had in their eyes. That's where Peter is at right now. Before you be too hard on him, put yourself where he is. It's the exact same sense of hopelessness and loss that these people in California had. And all this was caused by Jesus fea- failing to meet Peter's expectations. How does this apply to us today? What applies to us today in how we present the gospel of Jesus Christ to other people? When we use a false pretense to quote-unquote sell the gospel, it creates what ultimately will be an unmet expectation in their life. Let me give you some examples. You see some evangelists on TV or some evangelists, if you go to camp meetings, they'll say, come to Jesus and he's going to solve all your problems. Come to Jesus, he'll give you a sense of peace. Come to Jesus and and all your problems will be washed away. Or maybe a TV evangelist or radio guy says, give me this ministry more money and he's going to return it back to you a hundredfold. Just come to Jesus. Or you say that God is bound by his word to heal your every disease. Give generously and I'll send you a handkerchief to heal you at your point of need. Or one of the most dangerous is simply that you need to somehow accept Jesus and have eternal life. You don't have to worry about obedience or sanctification or doing the work of the kingdom. Just believe in your heart and you'll be saved. And the problem with this last one is that there's about 85% truth to it, but it leaves out a couple of important things. Where it fails is that the Bible says that the human heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can know it? That is why when we can have an evangelistic event and see hundreds of people come forward to accept Jesus and see only a net increase of three people in the church on Sunday because they have this unmet expectation of who Jesus is. And the reason is, is because they've accepted the false gospel. They never came face to face with their rebellion against the holy God. They never learned about sin. They never learned about the need for Jesus to do what he did. They were never led to a a bloody cross to meet the Savior who took the penalty of their sin and washed it away. They accepted a false Christ, and that led them to a false salvation or a false sense of security and an unmet expectation. They were told, just accept Jesus in your heart, and he'll make your life better. They try it, but as soon as persecution comes, they fall away. And they just end up like Peter with an unmet expectation. There's a second way that people can betray Jesus in the gospel, and that is through religion. We see that with the Pharisees. Let me define terms for a moment. The word religion means humanity coming to God on its own terms. Religion deals with rules, it deals with ceremony, it deals with pageantry or ritual to try to fill what I would call the God void within each one of us. The Bible says that God has put eternity in the hearts of men. And what that verse means is that he has created every single human being with an intrinsic knowledge that there is something beyond what we can see and touch and feel. There's something beyond ourselves. We come from our mother's wombs programmed with the need to search for that higher thing before we try to talk ourselves out of it with our minds. Religion tries to fill that need, but it ultimately fails. One of the ways I look at religion is this. Pretend for a moment that you're an automobile with flat tires. Religion inflates your tires with water and not air. You look at the car from the outside, everything looks fine with it. It looks like a perfectly functional automobile until you get in and try to drive with it. Then it shakes, it rocks, it drives you right off of the road and crashes into a tree. That's what religion does. It looks great on the outside, but in practice, you run off the road every single time. The gospel, on the other hand, is God fulfilling his terms for salvation. He does the work for your sake. That's why the word gospel means good news. God did all the heavy work, and we just have to accept it and then live it and live it through faith. So why do people choose the hard way in getting to God when he has made it incredibly easy for us with the gospel? Why do people choose to betray God's ways through just trying to practice a religion instead of having a relationship with him? Well, a little history of the why. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve, and he gave them complete dominion over his creation. Remember, he told them to go forth, And bring dominion to this creation. Conquer it. Bring it under your submission. As part of the condition of them ruling over his creation, he gave them the one rule. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Most of us know they broke that rule. And because of what they did, everything they had dominion over fell into sin which produced death. And one of the consequences of sin producing death within us is that we have a natural rebellion of doing things God's way. We don't want to do things his way. We just want to do it our way. And one of the principal results of this is religion. Us wanting to come to God on our terms and not his. Let me illustrate this just a little bit. You know that that toy that we give little kids? It's a little table that has the pound things on them, and they take a hammer, and they pound the shapes through. You flip it over, and they just continue to do that. Well, have you ever seen a kid grab the hammer by the business end and just use the hammer to try to pound it in? And then, and then you, uh, you, you take it away from him, you say, no, 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 you hold it by the handle, and you use this end. And what does the kid do? The kid's like, meh grabs it away from you and and continues to use the handle. That's kind of like us coming to God using religion instead of coming the way that he wants us to. We snatch back the gift and try to use it in a way that makes us comfortable, but it always ends with death. That's why the Pharisees resisted Jesus to the point of conspiring to murder him on false charges. Their religion worked itself out to form death within them, and it came out through their actions in regarding how they treated Jesus. They were so blinded by their actions because they had put God in a box where he was comfortable for them. They never had to deal with the truth of who they were. And this box was surrounded by all the rules, all the regulations, all the ceremony, the pageantry, the sacrifices... And the result of their religion was they could not see that God was standing right in front of them. The Pharisees' actions show us this undeniable truth. Religion, apart from relationship with God, always brings death. You can't come to God on your terms. You can only come to God on His terms. That's part of the prerogative of being God. You know the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. It's a, it's a joke. It's okay to laugh at that. The golden rule is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. But he is God and therefore he can make the rules for us. But we would rather follow a religion to come to God. You betray the God you're searching for. And you also betray Jesus and spit on everything he went to To bring you from death to life. So I'd ask you this morning are you living according to the gospel or according to some form of religion that you've made in your own mind and trying to follow that? The next way Jesus is betrayed is seen in Pilate, who represents the world's system and its temptations to us. When you read through the gospel accounts about Pontius Pilate, it's easy to make him into a villain. Historically speaking, Pilate was born into Roman aristocracy, and he was born into a life of privilege. He was like the American elite class of, of politician of his time. He was assigned to several prominent positions within the Roman government, but he never did very well at any of them. His appointment as a prefect of Palestine, a prefect is kind of like a governor, he was assigned to the prefect of Palestine was considered to be his last chance to show any talent or any leadership in government work. And if you got sent to Palestine, that was like the lowest of the low, of the low places you could be assigned as a Roman um, citizen and as the Roman government official. Pilate did not start out well. He didn't. He never bothered to understand the different factions, even within the Jewish religion, much less the people who lived there themselves. He never understood that Palestine during that time was in a constant, if muted, state of civil war. You had all these factions fighting with one another. He never figured out how the different levels of religious and civil government worked with each other. This led him to be very heavy handed and he offended everybody so that eventually he had no one to back him up in his country. Pilate's actions eventually led all the other governors and prefects in their surrounding surrounding areas to write letters to the emperor asking him to remove Pilate. It's a historical fact that they found in archaeology that a few weeks before Jesus stood before Pilate, the emperor had sent word to him and given him an ultimatum. Straighten up or you will be removed from any government position permanently. Now within the Roman society, when a politician was fired from a government position, it was considered to be an insult to the emperor that you could not perform for him. Therefore, you had one of two options, suicide or be executed. That's what Pilate was facing when Jesus stood before him. Pilate's acutely aware of Jesus' popularity with the people. But at the same time, he's aware that the Pharisees have the, eye, the ear of the other governments and the support of the other governors, especially Herod the Great, which is considered to be a friend of the emperor. Moreover, we see the Pharisees' ability to turn the opinion of the crowd And that power to cause civil unrest, which is the last thing Pilate needs to get back to, or or the news that Pilate can't control the crowds, if that gets back to the emperor, he knows he's done. That's the background of why Pontius Pilate makes this decision he makes. Why he went through all the drama of washing his hands, you see it in the other Gospels, where he washes his hands of this whole situation and puts it back on the people. He didn't want any part of it because he was worried that doing the right thing and saying that Jesus was innocent to these obviously false charges being leveled against him would cost him politically. And he would lose this position, his position in this world or his life. So he took the easy route and, and tried to blame it on the Roman... Uh, or, try, excuse me, try to blame it on the Pharisees. Pilate is an example today... To us today of loving a lifestyle, loving a position, loving riches, a relationship or possession more than seeing God's will for your life. And it's one of the main reasons why people don't come to Jesus Christ in repentance and receive forgiveness of their sins today. is because people are so worried about what they have to give up that they won't give in to God. In essence, they stand there just like Pilate, washing their hands of Jesus and choosing to protect their position in the world. Anybody here know a person like that? How many times have you looked in the mirror and seen that person? I know I have at times. How many times has our love for the things of this world caused us to make decisions that cause Jesus pain? How many times have we washed our hands of Jesus in public because we're too ashamed to admit to being one of his followers? Have we become Pilate in some area of our life? The last example of betrayal we see we see in what I call the fakers. And in that we finally get to Judas. The apostle Paul or excuse me apostle John in writing about Judas does not paint a very flattering picture of Judas. He calls him a thief and Jesus doesn't mince words either. Saying that there are a few things we need to remember about Judas. Number 1, he's chosen by Jesus to be a disciple. I'm throwing this out there for you this morning. That Jesus can call people he knows that will fail him some way along the way. Yet he still calls them. Number two is a logical consequence of the first point. Is that Jesus was used by the Holy Spirit. Listen to this. He was used by the Holy Spirit to preach. He was used by the Holy Spirit to bring healing to people. He was used even to perform miracles to point to people to Jesus. That tells us that God is no respecter of persons. If you are gifted by God, then he can use that for you. But if you take pride in your gift in God and think it's because of you, remember this. No matter how talented or gifted you may be, that gift or talent doesn't make you anything special because it didn't come from you. It came from God. So lest you think your gift makes you special, remember this. God used a donkey to preach to a prophet. You're not anything special because you can stand in front of and, and, and make a speech in front of people. You think that you're special because you can lead people in worship? Well, God, Jesus said that God can make rocks cry out praise to him. Therefore, don't take pride in your gifts and your talents, but instead do what, the, what God intended you to do with them and offer them up to the God who gave them to you so you can use it to enrich his kingdom. The third thing about Judas is that Jesus chose him to carry the money purse and be the treasurer of their ministry. And think about that for a moment. When you consider all the other disciples, you have Peter, Andrew, James, and John, all successful businessmen. They knew how to run a business. They had, the historical records tell us, they had the largest fishing business in northern Galilee. So they know how to handle money. You'll have Matthew Matthew was a tax collector, which to us would be like an accountant. He was a CPA. He knows how to handle money. Yet Jesus went past these five and gave it to Judas, who had no experience with money. Judas was a zealot. Judas was would we, if, if Judas was alive today and living in the Middle East, he'd be a terrorist. That's what a zealot was. It was a person who used terroristic methods to get a political point across. Yet Jesus still chose Judas. Now, Jesus didn't give up his deity when he became a human being. He knew the end from the beginning. He knew that Judas would eventually betray him, and yet he gave him some of the highest honors among all the other disciples. There's no evidence that Judas was ever seen in a bad light among the other disciples. It wasn't like Jesus said, one of you betray me, and they all went, yep, there he is. It wasn't like that at all. They all looked at each other and said, which one of us would be stupid enough to betray you, Lord? But that's what Judas represents to us today. As a class of people within the church, I found, and I kind of call them in my own mind, the fakers. They're the ones who might look very religious. They might look very spiritual. They might look very committed to the cause of Christ. But they are in it for themselves and not for the kingdom of God. And unfortunately, I've met many people like this. I've been a Christian for 25 years, and I've seen a lot of these people work behind the scenes, and they sow discord, rumors, and open rebellion against the church and against its leadership. Sometimes these people are the wealthiest people in the church, the big donors, and they use that position to blackmail the leadership into doing their will. And sometimes they might be even be in spiritual leadership. Yet you don't see any of the character of Christ and how they live or how they lead. They're the fakers. But I do have some good news about those kind of people, as I think they're a dying breed in the church. We were talking about this a little bit during Sunday school. As church leaders, we frequently talk about how the church seems to be shrinking in America and throughout the Western world. We've prayed about it, we've questioned why, we've done surveys, we've done all these kind of things, and we worry somehow that the kingdom of God is not advancing. But I've come to look at this in a different way. I think the reason why it seems like the church is shrinking is because the fakers are leaving the church. They see no benefit to stay, so they leave. And actually, that's a good thing. Don't get me wrong, I want everyone To stay in a church and come to a saving faith in Jesus and become a disciple and a follower of Him. But I don't have a lot of time for people who use the church and its people to further their own agenda or prop up their selfish needs. I have some more good news for you this morning as we prepare to enter into our time of communion. The shrinking church is a good thing in that it was predicted as a sign of the end times before Jesus comes back. The Apostle Paul tells the church in Thessalonica, he said, "'Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus "'and us being gathered to Him, "'we ask you, brothers and sisters, "'not to become easily unsettled or ashamed "'by the teaching allegedly from us, "'whether by prophecy or word of mouth or by letter, "'asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. "'Do not let anyone deceive you in any way.'" Now listen to this. For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the law, man of lawlessness is revealed. There, that word rebellion there means like an apostasy, people who leave the faith for something else. It was predicted that this was going to happen, that there was going to be a contraction within the church in the, la- in the last days. A shrinking church is a church being purified of those who are betraying Jesus and his message by never um, coming to him in faith in the first place. The Bible also speaks about the last day's church in the book of Revelation. Where it says, I heard, in Revelation 19, verse 6, it says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and listen to this, And His bride has made herself ready. Ready. That is what this time in history is. It's our beauty treatments to make us ready to sit at the wedding supper of the Lamb, to make ourselves a pure bride and give ourselves to Jesus and say, here we are, Lord, take us.